It was a wonderful moment at 5.15 this afternoon. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> but I was in the building and there was this incredible buzz of talking and energy. And then just in one moment, it all went silent. And it was so exquisitely beautiful. Oh, I hope you're enjoying <laughs> the renewed silence for this evening. There are two overarching principles that frame 2,500 years of Buddhist understanding and wisdom. These are principles that we talked about briefly a few days ago. They're the principles of relative and ultimate truth. Relative truth is the world of our conventional reality. It's the world of subject and object, the world of self and other, the world of things. Everything in our familiar reality can be thought of as part of this level of relative truth. Ultimate truth sees the very same things quite differently. There's no subject-object separation. There's no separate self. In fact, when we look very carefully at even very familiar objects, on this level of ultimate truth, there are no things at all. It's not what it appears to be. And ultimate truth in its very deepest aspect has been called in Buddhist terminology the unmanifest the unborn, the unformed, the unconditioned. We can see the expression of these two truths in a very simple example. Now if we consider this bell... You know, it's, <laughs> it's solid, it's heavy, it's a thing, you know. And yet, if we looked at it under a very high power microscope or, you know, in some way where we were seeing the atomic level, it would be mostly empty space. And even while it's mostly empty space, still I can come in. Well, how does that happen? If it's mostly empty space, what's ringing? On one level, it's solid, it has a thingness, it has a function, we use it. On another level of reality, it's completely different. And the substantiality of it really begins to dissolve. Understanding these two truths, relative and ultimate, not as polarities, but as a union, is really the great challenge for us, especially in going back to our lives in the world. How can we bring the wisdom of the ultimate into our lives on the relative level? That is the great challenge. 
It's very easy to become caught in one or another of these perspectives. We can become so caught on the relative level that our world becomes very narrowly confined. Our world becomes a prison of our own particular karmic situation. You know, just our particular circumstances of our lives. We start living in the story of our lives. And it's very confining. Now sometimes the story of our lives is pleasant, sometimes it's painful. And if we're only living in the confines of the relative understanding, it's a very contracted way to live. On the other hand, people sometimes become attached to the ultimate level. It's called attachment to emptiness. And so all things are dismissed, all situations are dismissed as being, oh, it's, it's all empty. And so we stay very disconnected from what the ancient Taoists called the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, just all the richness of life. The challenge is to not get caught in attachment to either perspective. We need to see the union. A transforming realization that happens as our practice matures, as our understanding matures, is that the relative and ultimate levels are not polarities but actually expressions of each other. We really begin to live them as a union. There's one teaching that very beautifully expresses this understanding. And it's a teaching by a great Tibetan yogi of the 18th century. His name was Shabkar. And he was a great Dzogchen practitioner. Dzogchen is one of the schools of Tibetan Buddhism. It's like a teaching in the, in the, Nyingma, the Nyingma school. So Shabkar wrote this very short verse, and it just beautifully expresses the understanding of the two truths. He's describing the nature of mind. He says, the mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. I'd like to talk about these three aspects. What does intrinsically empty mean? For many people, when we talk of emptiness, it doesn't really seem all that attractive. You know, it's not the word in English doesn't necessarily conjure up a place we want to go. Sometimes people hear the word emptiness and it just feels like, I don't know, a blank nothingness or a gray vacuity. Or... But in Buddhism, and a lot of that is the problem of translation, 
In Buddhism, emptiness is a very rich word and it has very many meanings. It can perhaps be most simply understood, this, this idea of emptiness, as the absence of self-centeredness. Now we hear the, the term self-centeredness, usually we think of it as a personality problem. You know, somebody's being very self-centered and we might think they should go to a therapist to deal with it. But it has a more fundamental meaning. And that is when we create or hold a sense of self to be at the center of our lives. Self-centered. We create this sense of self around which everything revolves. It's a reference point for everything we think and feel and in the body, in the mind. It's the idea of someone behind experience to whom it's all happening. That's the deeper meaning of self-centered. My body, my thoughts, my feelings. And we usually live in the gravitational field of this self-center. And we're circling around with our hopes and our fears and our plans and our desires, all our work and relationships, our lives revolving around the sense of self, revolving around our desires for new experience, even when we know that they're continuously changing. And it's amazing to see ourselves do this over and over again, revolving around this self-center, looking for the next hit of experience, as if it will finally fulfill us. Through a sustained and wise attention, as we cultivate a deepening ability to see clearly, a deeper concentration and mindfulness, we begin to leave this self-referential orbit, this orbit around a self-center, and we're drawn into the gravitational field of the Dharma. We begin to get glimpses of the zero center of emptiness, rather than the self-center of I and mine. And this zero center as our practice grows and deepens, the zero center becomes the new force of gravity in our lives. Rumi, you know, the wonderful Sufi poet and mystic, if you haven't read much Rumi, he's, it's totally wonderful. He expressed it really well. He said, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. <laughs> and that, again, expresses just that union of relative and ultimate. We have an address here, but live in the nowhere that we come from. Live out of that place of emptiness, out of that zero center. 
we can experience or touch this zero center, this understanding of emptiness, in many different ways. Sometimes we get an intimation of it just in our ordinary lives. You know, in those times in our lives when, for one reason or another, we seem to enter into an effortless flow, and it might be maybe in music or in sports or in work or in art or something, where we actually lose ourselves, lose that sense of self, and there's that spontaneous flow of experience, free of self. And really, everything is going much better for the lack of self. So that's, that's an intimation of what it might be like to come from the zero center. Sometimes we're reminded of this possibility by our teachers. You know, because often when you're in the presence of really great masters, you just have that intuitive sense of their emptiness, lack of self, lack of egotistical reference point. You know, and it's really inspiring. There's a story of one student of Kala Rinpoche, who Kala was a, one of the great mass, Tibetan masters of the last century. And he had a student from Canada who studied with him for a long time and then went back to Canada. And she lived way out in the country someplace, really far from any kind of Dharma support. And she wrote a letter to him you know, just explaining her situation. And the last line of her letter said, the only thing that keeps me going is holding you in my heart. So a couple of weeks go by, and she gets a card from Rinpoche in response with one line, the nature of the heart is emptiness. (laughs) (laughs) but then being as compassionate as he was a week or two later a further note came with this these few lines he wrote when you practice the holy dharma slowly clouds will drift away and the sun of wisdom and great joy will be shining in the clear sky of your mind so this emptiness is not one of sadness or depression or lack. Emptiness, the nature of the heart is emptiness, reveals the open, aware quality. Slowly the clouds will drift away and the sun, the shining sun of wisdom and great joy, will be shining in the clear sky of your mind. That's the manifestation. When we're no longer contracted in the self-center. So sometimes we just 
and fall into the space naturally at different times in our lives. Sometimes a teacher, either by their presence or by a teaching, can point it out to us. We also experience or learn to experience the meaning, the full meaning of emptiness through our own meditation practice. This is really what we're doing. We see it more and more clearly as we open to the insubstantial nature of all phenomena, sensations, thoughts, feelings, even awareness itself. At times our perception of change can become so refined and when our attention is clear and sharp, we see, I call them NPMs, noticings per minute. The NPMs go way up as our mind becomes still, unimaginably way up. And the Buddha talked of how things are changing 17 trillion times in the flesh of a something or other. And I don't know how he counted. (laughs) And I don't know, you know, if it's really 17 trillion, but it's a lot. You know, and we can begin to experience that for ourselves. You know, as our mind gets quieter and we're really tuning in to this flow of phenomena, we begin seeing how very, very rapidly everything is changing. And in that we see that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. There's nothing that could possibly be the self because everything is dissolving in the very instant of its arising. We see that there is no one behind experience to whom it's happening. So this is another way that we begin to realize the meaning. The mind is intrinsically empty, the nature of mind, the nature of the world, intrinsically empty. One last way, now whether it's just falling into a flow, an effortless flow in our lives, having a teacher pointed out to us, either through teachings or their presence, seeing the insubstantiality and impermanence in our own meditation practice. In the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, and in certain Zen traditions, they emphasize another aspect of emptiness. And that is the direct seeing of the empty sky-like nature of the mind. Padmasambhava was one of the great Indian adepts and mystics and sages. He brought Buddhism to Tibet in the 7th or 8th century AD. His many teachings on looking into the nature of our own minds I'll just read a few lines from one of these very direct teachings. This is from one of his his root texts. He said, It is certain that the nature of mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. You should look at your own mind to see whether this is so or not. And so in this teaching, the understanding of emptiness comes 
from a direct looking again and again and again into the nature of our own minds. And it is this great mystery because when we look for it, there is nothing to find. It's like space. You know, if I were to suggest, well, look at the space in the room. If we look too hard, we look right through it, you know, and we just see the objects. But it is possible, not by looking hard, but by settling back and softening the gaze, we can receive, we can open to the experience of space. We know what it is. But can we look at our own minds in that way? When we look at the nature of the mind, there's nothing to find. Although this emptiness of the mind is space-like, it's not space. Space doesn't know anything. Space is kind of an attribute of the physical world. So we don't want to confuse space or even spaciousness, which is just another conditioned state, with this direct intuitive realization of the emptiness or the groundlessness of the mind. There's a a wonderful line from the Polish Nobel Prize winning poet, I have a hard time with her name, Wisława Zimborska. She's a wonderful poet. She wrote, there is so much everything that nothing is hidden quite nicely. Yeah, and this is what happens when we get attached to the relative. You know, we're so involved in the everythings that the nothing, the emptiness is hidden quite nicely. So we have to loosen the grip of our attachment of clinging so that we can settle back and let the awareness of emptiness come to us. This ultimate nature of mind is not just intrinsically empty. As Shabkar said, it is also naturally radiant. And radiant here has a specific meaning. It doesn't, doesn't particularly mean glowing. Rather, radiant refers to the knowing, cognizing aspect. But it's not just emptiness. Because there's a knowing that's going on, there's a cognizing that's going on. And so when we look into our own minds, we see it both as being intrinsically empty, nothing to find, but also, and this is the great, this is the great mystery, it is also, has an innate wakefulness. This emptiness is innately wakeful. Kind of miraculous. It's Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great Thai teachers again of uh, the last century, he said, We should really call mind emptiness, but because of the knowing faculty, 
we call it mind. Okay, so we begin to see that this nature of mind has the cognizing power of emptiness. It's empty, there's nothing to find, and yet it's innately wakeful. It has this capacity to know. A description of this from quite another perspective. I came across, I was looking through a book. The name of the book, the title of the book is The Nothing That Is. And it was written by a mathematician who, at least at one time, taught at Harvard. And it's a book about the history of the number zero. And it really, I got very interested in it, but after about the first two lines, it started to lose me. <laughs> it got a little too mathematical, but the, the first two lines were great. <laughs> and just, I read them, and it was like a total expression of just this, of the innate wakefulness of emptiness. Okay, remember, this, it's, it's the history of the number zero. He wrote, look at zero and you see nothing, but look through it and you see the world. And so it's just that idea that emptiness allows us to see the world because of the innate wakefulness, because of its cognizing power. Now the great teaching in all this, as we begin to understand this nature of our mind, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, radiant meaning that capacity to know, to cognize, that wakefulness, the transforming understanding in this is that This nature of mind is not something we have to go get. It's not that it's something we don't have now, and you know we spend 20 years looking for it and then we find it. Rather, it is the nature of our minds. And so it's not something we get, but something we come back to again and again and again. And we come back to it as we learn to be with our experience without clinging. Liberation through non-clinging. So we begin to let go of our attachments, that grasping, that fixation, the holding, whether it's to the body or thoughts or emotions or sensations or situations or people, whatever it is. If we can let go of the clinging and the attachment and drop back, into this nature of mind that is intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, naturally knowing. There's an image that describes this movement from delusion, from the delusion of fixation to the wisdom of awareness. Describes the movement from a self-centered to the zero-center 
So the wisdom mind of emptiness. And that's the image that's, that's used of ice and water. Now ice is hard, it's solid, it's frozen. And it represents the mind contracted in identification or attachment to any arising object. And you know from experience what it's like. We're just we're sitting or walking and going along, we're kind of in a flow of change, and then all of a sudden something arises and we stick. Sometimes I have this image of like all experience, you know, flowing by and each one is with a little hook on it. And the mind's like a little fish. <laughs> no, oh, that looks good. <laughs> yeah, and we just keep biting it. <laughs> that's attachment. That's clinging. That's what's meant by this image of ice, where the mind gets contracted in that. Ice is when we're lost in our thoughts of past and future. When we're lost in the movies of our minds. And then one of the beauties of a retreat like this is, and after all these days, you really have the very intimate experience of what it's like to be lost and what it's like to be awake to what's happening. Because we've all go through it countless times in the day. I hope you've noticed the difference. <laughs> I mean, just pay attention to how many, both on retreat and, and out in the world, how many times in the day we get caught up, we get lost in desire and anger and pride and impatience and sadness and grief and happiness and just on and on and on. It keeps rolling, keeps rolling on. Okay, so this is ice, when the mind is caught, when it's attached, when it's fixated. Water represents the mind free of attachment, free of clinging. Water represents the nature of awareness when there's no attachment in the mind. It's consciousness free of self, free of the self-center. Water is unfrozen. It's unfixated. And so when we go from ice to water, it's like that moment of being in a movie theater. You know, of having been in a movie theater and totally lost in the story on the screen and really caught up with all the attendant emotions. And the movie's over and we step outside and you know that moment? It's like there's a... It's like there's that little reality shift where our mind, even if it's been enjoyable in one way or another, it has been narrowed. And we step out of the movie, oh, all of that was just a movie. You know, and there's that sense of consciousness expanding again. Well, this happens many, many times in the day when we come out of the movies of our minds. And this is the movement from ice to water. It's very interesting to pay careful attention to when we're really lost in some mind drama, and when we're just caught up in some story in our minds, and then the moment of realizing all of it, the whole drama, are just some thoughts. 
That's a powerful moment. That's when we go from ice to water, from frozen to unfrozen, from attached to unattached. Now there's a great discovery here, and this discovery is tremendously important. And that is that water, that state of water, that state of openness, that state of awareness, is nothing other than melted ice. So awareness is not some far-off other state you know, that maybe someday we'll reach. Awareness is that state, that quality, when we unfreeze the attachment, when we let go. So it's right here. It's always right here. And we simply have to settle back into it. Of course, we also need to be careful be attentive, because sometimes we think we are flowing along in water, flowing along in our lives, and it's all water, it's all just empty awareness. But it's not really water, it's slush. (laughs) Because often there are subtle attachments and subtle identifications that we don't even notice. So it takes a continual refinement and attentiveness. So often in my practice I could be sitting and feeling really open, really spacious, everything is just flowing along. And then all of a sudden I'll feel a moment of something relaxing, something letting go, something I didn't even know I was holding on to. That's the slush. You know, it's in that moment of relaxation where we realize, ah, this is, this is, a fuller experience of letting go. In the open, unobstructed nature of water, there is a great responsiveness to to situations. When we're empty of self, empty of attachment, we become like water flowing down a mountain you know, that responds completely and perfectly to the topographic conditions of the mountain. It finds the shortest way down, given the particular topography. The water is completely responsive to its environment. And so this reveals the third aspect of the nature of mind. that is intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And this is the understanding that compassion is the activity of emptiness. Compassion is the natural responsiveness of the mind free of clinging. Kensi Rinpoche Another, another great Tibetan master, he wrote, when you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. When you recognize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless.
And so this is that union of relative and ultimate truths. In the realization of emptiness, compassion flowers. For me, this was a tremendously important insight. Because for many years, ever since I first began studying Buddhism, now one comes across the bodhisattva vows, you know, which are these vows of a bodhisattva. They're expressed in one, in one formulation. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. You know, and it goes on from there. Well, I had read that, you know, that, bodh- that aspiration to be a bodhisattva. And it was hugely inspiring, and also it seemed totally impossible. Yeah, I just, given my own predilections and limitations, and I just thought, yeah, it's a nice idea, but I will never be able to do that. And so the vow didn't make much sense to me. How could I possibly save all beings? And then I heard these teachings about how Compassion is the activity of emptiness, and something clicked. Because if we're resting the bodhisattva vow, this is going to probably be a little mixed metaphor, but on the shoulders of self, it's way too much. A self could never do it. Self is much too limited to undertake that kind of aspiration. But if we understand the bodhisattva vow as being the natural activity of selflessness, of emptiness, then it's not the me that's going out to save all beings. It actually just becomes the natural activity of the mind that is increasingly free of self-center. And so all of that bodhisattva activity happens by itself. It's selfless. And when understood in that way, it became hugely inspiring. So the question now, as you're getting ready to leave the retreat and go back into the world, is how we can actualize this understanding so that the experience of retreat you know, and the beginning sense of understanding this union of relative and ultimate truths so that it's not simply in, you know, we're holding an intimation of a possibility but actually as we go back into the world how can we live this? It doesn't simply become just a nice idea How can we actualize it in our lives? There are some very straightforward ways, and the Buddha, you know, his teaching is so pragmatic. He really lays out the path. He says, this is the way to do it. And it starts, the first training is the foundation, and that has to do with the refinement of our commitment to non-harming. In Pali, in the Pali language, this is called sila. 
And it's usually expressed as the five precepts, you know, which we took at the beginning of the retreat. But each of the precepts is capable of immense refinement. You know, it's so easy to think, oh yes, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, and I don't do too bad things. But if we really want to live the Dharma in its fullness, we need to take a deeper look at this, because sila, or the commitment to non-harmic, is incredibly rich. And that's a powerful arena of activity for us. Now just as a reminder to you, the precepts of not killing and not stealing, the one on retreat of refraining from sexual activity, you'll be happy to know gets transformed as you leave, (laughs) to refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from wrong speech, and refraining from using intoxicants that just cloud the mind. So can we really make this a conscious part of our lives? You know, where it's not just something we rattle off at the beginning of a retreat, but we really look carefully at each of these precepts. What would it mean to live a life of not killing? Of not taking the life of another being? Can we do that? You know, in our culture, it's, we are so, we can take life so lightly. You know, we have some kind of insects in our house. Out comes the can of Raid. You know, cockroach hotel. <laughs> they come in, but they don't go out. <laughs> I don't know, all of that. Can we step back for a moment from that quick, immediate response, we don't like it, kill it, you know, or killing things for sport you know, or pleasure, and just kind of consider what does it mean when we take the life of another being? Can we practice that restraint, that, that commitment of non-harming? It's really practicing a kind of reverence for life. But it's sometimes not so easy can push us to some edges, really difficult ethical questions. You know, what do we do with malaria, carrying mosquitoes? We just say, be happy, be happy. (laughs) I mean, sometimes maybe, as we weigh everything, it feels, yes, we need to do that. But then it's done with a much greater consciousness and hopefully with some compassion for the whole situation. We need simply to wake up to what we're doing, so that our choices become conscious rather than habituated. No, and not stealing. That's kind of obvious. But the positive side of that would be the practice of contentment. And we're not just taking more than what we need. However one defines need for oneself. Can we become awake and make that a practice. One of my favorite stories on the grace of contentment is about the Zen poet, hermit, monk Ryokan, who lived in the 18th century, and he lived as a hermit up in the woods, very simply, totally simply, and he would just live in this little hut and go out and play with the children. And one day he came back from playing, you know, walking through the villages. He came back to his hut, and his few little utensils, 
for cooking and supplies had been stolen. So he wrote a haiku. The thief, the moon at the window, the thief left it behind. And I read that, of course it's a beautiful haiku, but then I thought, what would I do if I came home and everything in my house was stolen? The moon at the window. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) And it just, you know, it just opens up another possibility. How attached are we to a lot of stuff that we actually don't even need? And so it's just to explore this. This this is, it's not, the precepts in the Buddhism, Buddhism, they're not commandments. It's all rules of training. It's like ways to wake up to our lives. Now, refraining from sexual misconduct, sexual energy is so powerful. That's such a powerful force in so many people's lives. It's often when we feel most alive and most vibrant. And so the Buddha talked about bringing this into our spiritual path. So we begin to use that energy skillfully. And to refrain from using it in a way that's harmful or exploitative. One of the great all-time Burmese English translations, as Saira Upandita was going on and on, long, long discourse on uh, the dangers of unmindful sensual desire. So he had been talking for a long time, and the translator just came out with one short phrase. <laughs> and the, tra- the translator translated all of that long piece as lust cracks the brain. (laughs) And I dare say we've all had experiences of that. (laughs) It's powerful, and it can crack the brain. (laughs) So we need to bring some awareness, we need to bring mindfulness, so we need to put it in the context of our journey. One of the biggest areas of applying the practice in our lives in the world, and this is a huge arena of practice, and offers endless possibilities for deepening our mindfulness, for paying attention. And that is the whole area of speech. Now, how much of our day, in the course of our normal lives, do we spend talking? most of us it's quite a lot and yet it's probably very rare that we think of speech as being part of the spiritual path we're so habituated in our patterns to bring mindfulness to what we say very difficult to do as you probably noticed just in the hour of talking it's so easy to just get caught up in the energy of the moment the Buddha gave one very uh, simple and concise guideline that we could practice. He said, say that which is true and that which is useful. If it's just true and not useful, it's better not to say it. 
say that which is true and that which is useful. And so we really practice noticing when are we engaging in lies and what's untruthful. What's the joy, you know, that we get out of gossiping about other people? It's quite interesting. Just there's something that the mind likes about it. What is it? You know, what really is going on? It would be very helpful to look, to really look deeply at what our motivation is. Not taking intoxicants that, you know, just really cloud us and delude us. So we use these precepts as a way of waking up. They are the foundation. The Buddha talked about sila, this commitment to non-harming, as being the true beauty of a person. You know, we're so concerned with outer beauty, and yet the real beauty of a person is in their integrity, the space of non-harming. It's the gift of trust to everybody around them. Because when we're committed to sila, to non-harming, we're saying with our actions, no one need fear us. That we're not be, we won't be doing anything that causes harm. Well, that's a great gift in the world. It also provides the basis for concentration, the ability to concentrate, because when we're committed to sila, the mind is free of remorse. We're not always thinking about the unskillful things we've done. And the power of that comes really from the time we commit. And we've all done lots of unskillful things in the past. But from the time that we really commit to being wakeful in this regard, there's a tremendous sense of strength, of inner strength. The Dalai Lama summed up this whole, this whole way of practice, this whole practice of sila, when he said, my true religion is kindness. You know, so if you can't even remember the five precepts, can you remember that? You know, my true religion is kindness. Can we practice that with ourselves and with others? Okay, so the second field of training, first is sila, Second field of training is practicing what we've been practicing here, really strengthening and deepening the power of our concentration, of our mindfulness. Really now the retreat is half over, you know, and you're about to, about to enter the difficult part of the retreat, which is what happens when you're home. It's a big mistake to think, Oh, well, I came, I put in my time, and then go home and coast, expecting kind of the rewards to trail after you without continuing practice. We need to sustain it, otherwise it begins to fall away. The keystone of practice in the world, of deepening mindfulness and concentration and keeping it strong, is a daily practice. So as a kind of farewell mantra, sit every day. Just sit every day. 
And maybe after being on retreat, you think it'll be easy to sit every day. It's not. The demands of the world have a way of crashing back in, and for a while you're doing it, and then you start squeezing it in between other activities, and pretty soon it's squeezed out you know, between other activities. It takes a discipline. It's not easy to do. But the fruit of it, the rewards of it, are inestimable. We need that time. Our lives are so busy and so engaged and so interactive. We need some time each day just to sit still, to quiet down, to go inside, to come back to the breath. Sometimes people ask, well, how long should I sit? How long do I need to sit? So I'd like to give two, two, the range of possibilities. One was told to me by a friend, very busy guy, he's a psychiatrist, family, children, very busy practice, busy, engaged in the world. And he said that for the last 20 years, he has sat an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, without missing a day. I was really impressed. And that's impressive, that level of commitment. And this is a guy who's engaged. It's not that he was off someplace you know, in the hut. So it's possible. It is really possible if we make it a priority. Hour in the morning, hour in the evening. But maybe that's you just think, for those of you who are inspired by that, I would go for it, because it will definitely bear fruit. But maybe for some or most of you that seems too much. Sitting once a day, you know, whether it's half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, but doing it regularly. For the real, what's the word? Slackers. <laughs> Slackers among you. <laughs> For you, I have a surefire discipline. This is absolutely guaranteed, and there's not anybody in this room who could not do this. Have your commitment, your solemn vow, be that at least once a day before you get into bed, you will get into meditative posture. That's all. That's your commitment. I will at least get into the posture, even if it's for two seconds. Because what's so extraordinary is that once we're in the posture, it's not actually that hard to go on sitting for a while, but somehow it's that transition that's what's so difficult. Especially if you have the idea, oh, I don't have an hour, or even I don't have half an hour. If your commitment just get into the posture, you'll see a great fruit from that. So no one is excused. <laughs> I mean, just getting into the posture, that's... It's very doable.
during the day, you know, just during the course of the day, can you take some time, a few minutes at a time, coming back to the breath? You know, we're all caught up in our activities and our busyness, just you know, sitting at your desk or wherever. You just take a few minutes to reconnect. It's helpful, it's a reminder. As you're walking around, at work, at home, you know, doing errands, we're walking anyway. Can we practice being mindful of the movement? Really using the body as a vehicle for staying awake, for staying mindful, rather than just continuing our habit of being lost in our minds, in the movies, in the stories. We need to make the effort, because without the effort it doesn't happen. The pull of habit is tremendously strong. And so we need to really arouse a certain quality of resoluteness. And it can be done with joy. This, this is not kind of a big burdensome thing. This is it's like the joy of learning how to wake up in our lives. How to bring this to our life. And lastly, pay attention to your minds. You know, as we go through our lives and our day and our work and our relationships... Just pay attention to the patterns of thought, all the tapes that come through, to the whirlpools of emotion that might happen. We can become mindful of them. We don't have to be drowning in them. So this is the second field of training. The first is sila, the refinement of our commitment to non-harming. The second field is really practicing ways of strengthening the mindfulness and concentration and actually doing it. And the third field of training for actualizing our understanding in the world is the training in wisdom. Really investigating those times when we do feel caught, when we are suffering. A very big turning point for me in my practice, and it took some time, In the early years, whenever I would be caught or lost in some defilement of mind, you know, it's whatever it was, desire or irritation or pride or, you know, the whole whole long list of defilements, I would get very judgmental. I would become very judgmental of the state and very judgmental of myself. I was like, I used to go running to my teacher in the early days just telling him what an awful person I was you know, because I was seeing all this. But at a certain point, something changed. And instead of judging myself, I actually started becoming delighted to see this stuff. Oh, desire. Great. Why did I become delighted? Because I would rather see it than not see it. You know, and just the joy of the possibility of seeing through it rather than not seeing it and being lost. And that really changes the whole attitude we bring to understanding our minds. There is suffering. You know, we do get caught up in all this stuff. So do we just get down on ourselves and create more suffering? Or do we take an interest in what's happening? You know, we see ourselves caught, we see ourselves suffering, and really bring that quality of investigation. What's happening here? What am I attached to? What am I resisting? What am I not opening to? 
And so a lot of energy comes precisely in those times when we might be suffering the most. This is the growth of wisdom. We attend to the great truth of impermanence. This is the growth of wisdom. It's all around us. If we open our eyes, we can't possibly miss it. Everything is changing on every level, wherever we look. But because it's so commonplace, we've stopped looking. And because we've stopped looking, we've stopped learning from it. It's through seeing the impermanence that we really can practice the not holding on, the letting go of grasping, because we see the futility of it. We really settle into the flow of change rather than trying to hold on. Ajahn Chah, another of the great Thai masters, he said something very simple. He said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So This is the growth of wisdom. This is the third training. We really need to pay attention to our lives to wake up to how we get caught and how we can be free. So as we train in these three ways, the refinement of sila, of non-harming, strengthening mindfulness and concentration through a regular practice, cultivating the wisdom that illuminates the Dharma, we begin to see how things are, we begin to see the truth of things, and we begin living in this inseparable union of the relative and ultimate level, relative and ultimate truth. One, one great teacher expressed it, he said, the ultimate truth is emptiness, the relative truth is compassion. When these two are realized, enlightenment is unavoidable. So this is our practice. It's our practice on retreat. It's our practice in our lives. I'll just close with very informal teaching from one of our Tibetan teachers, Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche. He said, I would like to pass on one little bit of advice I give to everyone. Relax. Just relax. Be nice to each other. As you go through your life, simply be kind to people. Try to help them rather than hurt them. Try to get along with them rather than fall out with them. With that, I will leave you and with all my very best wishes. It's that simple. Let's sit for a few minutes.